Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. On Friday, Congresswoman Lori Trahan, a Democrat from Massachusetts and a member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, led a group of other Democrats, including Senator Ron Wyden and Representatives Katie Porter, Stephen Lynch, Susan Wild, Mondaire Jones, Kathy Castor, Adam Schiff, and Elisa Slotkin, to sign a letter requesting information from gaming companies about their efforts to combat hate, harassment, and extremism in online games. The letters were sent to companies including Activision Blizzard, Take-Two Interactive, Riot Games, Epic Games, Valve, Microsoft, Sony, and even Roblox. The letters read, quote, We know that online games, like the ones you create, are widely used spaces where millions of people overwhelmingly report experiencing positive social behaviors and find a sense of community and belonging with other players. However, they are also spaces where hate, harassment, and extremism can proliferate and we are concerned about the total volume as well as the increase in player reports of these negative encounters. The letters followed a report issued by the Anti-Defamation League earlier this month that found that 77% of adults and 66% of teens have reported experiences of harassment while playing online games, in addition to a number of other concerns in social gaming environments. Today, I'm joined by one of the authors of that report, as well as co-author of a report commissioned by the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism, on the intersection of gaming and violent extremism. Daniel Kelly, I'm the Director of Strategy and Operations at the ADL Center for Technology and Society. I'm Renat Amrasingham, Assistant Professor in the School of Religion and cross-appointed to Political Studies at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada. We're going to talk today about gaming and violent extremism. Uh, Both of you recently authored reports on this subject I'm Arnath Yu for the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism, a UNCCT, a report titled Examining the Intersection Between Gaming and Violent Extremism. And of course, Daniel Yu for the Anti-Defamation Leagues, a Center for Technology and Society. Hate is New Game, Hate and Harassment in Online Games 2022. I want to ask you each just about, very briefly, the methodology that you used for your report. Every year for the last four years, we've done a uh, nationally representative survey of folks in the U.S. uh, looking at the sort of prevalence of hate and harassment, as well as certain extremist topics in online multiplayer games. When we talk about white supremacy and the sort of results we found there, I think, you know, methodologically, we've approached it really carefully because I think video games generally Everyone has blamed every sort of moral panic in history on video games, right? Uh, there's been decades of research at this point that push back on the narrative that, that games, you know, cause mass shootings, for example, right? So we wanted to be really thoughtful when we were talking about are white supremacists, for example, like being active in the online games? Are they recruiting, right? These kinds of things. So we asked an initial question in 2019 when we we asked sort of broadly about people hearing conversations about a home for the white race or the superiority of whites, the inferiority of non-whites, sort of very sort of clear white supremacist dogma. And then in subsequent years, we 
we're a little even more conservative than that. We ask the same question, but then we ask people to sort of expand upon that in an open text field, right? To say, describe a little bit about what you're uh, what you're seeing. And if they said something that was relevant to that topic, or I don't want to disclose anymore, then we added them to the tally. But if they said something random, right, or that we didn't feel like fit the topic, um, we took them out of the count, right? And so in the first year, it was about a quarter of gamers. In subsequent years, it was around one in 10, right, as we got more conservative. But this year, I think what is really concerning for us is even with this very conservative methodology, we found that 20% of adult gamers were exposed to white supremacist ideologies in online multiplayer games, right? So I think this is this is a key point here, right? Which is we're seeing the, the prevalence of these kinds of ideas, right? I think the other piece of this is we're not necessarily, at a survey level, we can't necessarily speak to, right, is this recruitment, right, is this active extremists being in these spaces, but it is people who are hearing these kinds of ideas in these spaces and people, you know, sort of testing out whether these things are, is there any pushback from the community or the platform around people, you know, flirting with these kind of hateful, harmful ideologies. Amar, you took a, a slightly different methodology. You ran focus groups and also consulted with experts. The starting point was kind of similar to look at, you know, the literature review a little bit to see what has been written on not only the intersection between gaming and extremism, but gaming and violence in general. Because as Daniel noted, you know, ever since Columbine and probably before that, gaming has been blamed for, for all kinds of violence from school shootings to mass shootings to extremist violence. So we looked at the literature review. It's very scattered in terms of the findings. You know, there's some, possibly some relationship between gaming and increased aggression, but that's not even a one-to-one correlation. And so there's really nothing in terms of, there's no evidence to support the panic, basically. And so we we also then conducted uh, phase one focus groups with a bunch of experts on extremism, but who were also gamers to get a sense of how their extremism research minds uh, actually engage with gaming and what they see when they when they're uh, when they're gaming. And then we uh, did a second phase of focus groups with just gamers to see what kind of content they were seeing. And they were kind of activists also working with youth uh, already. And so that was an interesting perspective. And then we kind of built insights from all of that uh, into a survey questionnaire, which we then sent out to gamers. We were hoping to get 100 responses. We got 622. And so that was good. Part of that was to understand what gamers themselves were seeing and how they were responding to some of this content. Because I think in this space in particular, you know, we talk a lot about gamers, but we don't necessarily talk to gamers. Um, and, and sometimes that's because they're, it's, it's a kind of close-knit community, um, not necessarily open to research, not necessarily open to outside interventions and so on. So it, it is a difficult community to kind of work within that from a research perspective. So we were kind of happy to see that many responses. And then so we asked about exposure to game, uh, extremist content, what they do when they see this extremist content, um, what they think needs to happen from a government perspective or from policy perspective, um, and all sorts of things. And so, um, yeah, we can get into some of that later. But yeah, the, the point was to kind of, from a like wave after wave or phase after phase, just trying to build insights into a broader survey. Your report, you know, helpfully, I suppose, for anybody that's not a gamer points out there are some 3 billion gamers uh, around the world. So, you know, obviously a huge way that people are spending their time uh, with digital media. And Daniel, I appreciated the degree to which your report kind of got into some of the specifics of those game communities themselves, everything from, you know, Roblox to Fortnite. But could I ask you, you each to kind of just generally characterize how you think about 
games. I mean, it, it's almost like a category that's too broad. It's like talking about the ocean or something. Yeah, I mean, uh, for, from from ADL's perspective, I think we did spend some time thinking about, okay, we're building the center for technology and society. Gaming is a huge part of that ecosystem. The, where are the gaps around the work, right? And for us, you know, in the sort of uh, civil society, just and inclusion world, there's a lot of people who are working on games as media, right? Who are thinking about games as forms of media, right? In terms of like representation or whose stories are being told or how those stories are being told. But there are less people who are doing work on games as social platforms akin to social media. And that's really where we're focused is every game that all the games you mentioned justin are social platforms roblox is a platform fortnite is a platform league of legends is a platform and they have the same issues or similar issues with content moderation that social media has they have their own unique problems as well but they have all of the problems plus of social media and i don't think that they've gotten the attention that is necessary from civil society certainly from government i think we're seeing more from researchers in the last couple of years but i i think uh that's sort of where our focus is right it's online multiplayer games uh, and the ways in which they function as digital social platforms. Yeah, no, I think we took a similar approach and, and the, the kind of definition of gaming itself and what a gamer is actually took up quite a bit of the conversation during our focus groups because um, as you kind of alluded to, Justin, you know, a gamer, <laughs> it could be anything from someone who plays tic-tac-toe on their phone to someone who plays like live action shooting games or something like that. And so so the identity of a gamer, someone who identifies as I'm a gamer, uh, was actually quite interesting because they, re they they kind of talked about the kind of toxic landscape that some of these platforms actually um, have for them and, and how gamer is defined in very masculine ways and in very white ways and, 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 and so on. So even the identity itself was quite complicated uh, from, from a gamer perspective. And so that's something we wanted to kind of understand uh, the kind of normalization of some of the stuff on these platforms. But I mean, Daniel's uh, entirely right. I mean, there some of these games don't have a chat function. Other games do have a chat function. Other games are almost entirely streams or kind of community building environments. A lot of them lived across multiple platforms. A lot of our participants lived across multiple platforms, played multiple games and, and got different things out of different platforms, right? So sometimes they would go onto Discord simply to be a part of an online community, uh, much like I would go on Twitter or some other social media platform. So it, it's a gaming adjacent platform, but it largely functions as a kind of social media platform for them. Other times, you know, they would shut all of that off and just play one on one with somebody or a stranger or, or just a group of friends and live in a kind of more private gaming environment to kind of shut out some of the more toxic content. And so it was interesting to see some of these young people kind of navigate these spaces, um, how they felt as sometimes bystanders when confronting homophobia or transphobia or, or, or sexist content on these platforms. And so I think part of what we wanted to get at is how they see themselves and how they navigate this space uh, when when they are in the presence of hate speech or, or, or um, some sort of misogynistic violence or something like that. I do want to talk about those underlying kind of cultural themes as things that seem to be somewhat common across many of these game environments. So you mentioned misogyny, white supremacy, uh, general whiteness uh, in terms of the kind of cultural, I suppose, sense inside these environments. Um, can you characterize that a little bit? To what degree do you regard in general uh, many of these social game environments as displaying these types of toxic characteristics? The game industry is generally about 10 years behind social media in terms of addressing any kind of content moderation issues, right? And so I think what you end up seeing is a lot of 
even sort of the the highest budget triple A kind of games, the the actual content moderation feels more akin to like a 4chan or a gab, right? You end up with sort of both a structural permissiveness for hate and harassment and toxicity, and that sort of feeds into a community of folks, right, that that sort of see this as the norm. An example I, I give a lot is uh, if you look at the report that the New Zealand government put out about the Christchurch shooter and his journey of radicalization, uh, they talk about you know, his formal radicalization happening in mainstream social media platforms, but the beginning of his journey of radicalization starting in gaming spaces where he's sort of testing out the waters with various sort of far right sort of phrases or ideas, right? And so because these kind of spaces, you know, there isn't the moderation, uh, there isn't the community norms pushing back against that, folks like that can can sort of flirt with these ideas in these spaces and see if it's something that they will get pushed back on. Not everyone who does that ends up being a Christchurch shooter, but one did, right? And so I think that, to me, speaks to the underinvestment by the industry, which has sort of resulted in the kinds of community we're talking about. Yeah, that part of it came up a lot in our survey as well. Like uh, A lot of them felt that the kind of tech solutions to some of this stuff that existed on other platforms just didn't exist on these gaming platforms. Even some, you know, some games don't have a block function, for example, right? And so some some basic stuff like that, they were kind of calling for better tech solutions to at least help on from a tech side to some of these things that they were encountering. One of our findings actually surprised me, which was uh, we asked, you know, what kind of content are you most exposed to? Or And, and we broke down, you know, misogyny, xenophobia, extremist content, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, uh, homophobia, etc. And, and, to my kind of surprise, they said, you know, only about 15 or 16 percent said that they had ever witnessed any levels of extremism or anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, whereas the numbers were quite reversed when we asked about misogyny, racism, that sort of thing. Right. And so I think it tells us two things. One, there's a lot more misogyny uh, and homophobia, kind of masculine uh, identity issues on these platforms than anything else. But I have a sneaking suspicion because it's just a survey and we can't ask follow-up questions and so on, that a lot of the other things that they're seeing when it comes to anti-Semitism or Islamophobia are so kind of casual um, and so normative that it doesn't even register as hateful content for them to kind of answer on a survey that they might be exposed to, right? And so kind of casually racist, heteronormative, misogynistic languages is, is kind of so open and in your face all the time that it doesn't even register something outside the norm or something that they should flag, which was kind of interesting because I think just the culture of the gaming environment in, in some of these spaces anyway, it, it's almost just like background noise at this point that it doesn't rise to the level of something that should be reported or a cause for concern. Daniel, how do those figures kind of match up with your report in terms of prevalence of these types of problems? I would say that I would say that they're they're similar, right? I think we see that anti-black and anti-woman targeting of hate are the most prevalent in our survey results. Um, we did see large spikes in anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim sentiment this year, um, but I think one of the reasons why you don't see that overall is because of the ways in which games function and the ways in which identity can be expressed in these spaces. So I think lots of people make assumptions on people's identity based on their voice, for example, in a, in a space. And so somebody who speaks a certain way, whether or not they are a person of color, whether or not they are a woman or, or, or female identifying, um, when they speak, there, there are certain assumptions that are made about their identity. And we've seen this, I've seen this in research as well, right? When uh, somebody of a certain identity is, is you know, targeted for being a different identity, 
right? Um, because somebody makes an assumption, a, a broad assumption about how they speak. Now, one of the quotes we have about the anti-Semitism in the online games was something along the lines of like, I stupidly said I was Jewish. And then they started in with the myth jokes. The person had to affirmatively say, I am Jewish in order to be targeted with anti-Semitism. But had that person not said that they were Jewish, it's unclear whether they would have been targeted because of that aspect of their identity, right? So I think part of the reason why you know the trends are this way is because of the ways that identity can be expressed in these spaces and the ways in which some facets of identity have to be sort of positively affirmatively brought into the space in order to become in order to become targets which they which they do I want to ask you, Daniel, in particular, about your focus on allyship. Um, so you didn't just focus on extreme behavior, but also on individuals who are essentially playing the role of, of ally, addressing these problems in real time. Um, what did you find there? So I think um, when we're talking about ally behaviors in online multiplayer games, I think the we went in with an assumption, right? We wanted to ask about things like, do are people ignoring various forms of harassment are they standing up for themselves uh, are they talking to other people that they trust about what um, you know about what's going on with them and i think you know we found looking across whether people see this every time or often or sometimes that a lot more people were standing up for other people or feeling that they had been you know either an ally themselves or experienced being an ally by someone else which i think you know given all of the sort of heavy negative elements of the results i think for us was a, was a positive trend in that people were actually both for for youth and for adults certainly there was a a, a strong percentage of folks who said that they they ignored it but i think more than we thought uh, definitely either engaged or experienced ally behaviors in these spaces when faced with harassment which i think was was heartening to see and Amar, I wanted to ask you specifically about jihadist extremism that you've observed in the gaming environment. That's one aspect that your report looked at. I think some of the fear around that was has been overblown because there, there was a moment when you know ISIS placed uh, a, a kind of gaming skin over one of the live shooter games, and you know there was like ten articles about it, and people freaked out. Uh, but of course, they forgot to point out that almost nobody played it, right? And and so the, I, I do think there there's a bit of panic around some of these things where a jihadist group might put out a game or adapt a game or something like that. And the assumption is that it's widely taken up and used as used for target practice or something like that, when in fact, most people are just playing the better games, right? My friend Ross Franadolf says, says this, he's from Moonshot, where he says, you know, takes a massive amount of money and time and expertise to create a good game that actually will get people interested. A bunch of people in a basement somewhere aren't going to just replicate uh, something like this. And so you do, you do see extremist groups, whether on the far right or on, on in jihadist spaces, try to make games, adapt games. But um, for the most part, I haven't seen one that's particularly popular or used uh, in any widespread way. So I, I think that's good news. I want to ask a little bit about just some specifics, if you will. Um, you know, you, especially Daniel, your report kind of goes into a, a bunch of different particular games, uh, including some that my children play, of course. Are there games that you think have particularly toxic environments or have produced, uh, you know, perhaps um, some statistical outlier in terms of the responses you receive from your survey? Sure. So I think one of the things to to highlight is all of these, whether we're talking about extremism, whether we're talking about hate and harassment, 
Like, I think one would imagine, for example, that perhaps just the shooter games, right, is where this is happening. But we found across the across genre, all this stuff exists, right? Whether it's a shooter game, whether it's a strategy game, whether it's, you know, an, a, a football game or a card game or a sandbox game like Minecraft or Roblox. These kinds of experiences exist regardless of the, uh, the content of the game itself. So I think that's one piece. And I think another piece is really about visibility. I think you've seen a lot of pieces in the last year about Roblox because I think Roblox is, you know, is searchable for investigators and researchers in a way that other game spaces aren't, right? You can go on roblox.com right now and search for a bunch of white supremacist, you know, terminology. And I think at this point, you won't be able to find as much as you could a year ago because there has been all these different investigations from the research community, from journalists, and that has forced them through public pressure to step up their, uh, to step up their efforts around this. For, you know, one of the things that we found was the the game that had the most exposure to white supremacist content was Call of Duty, right? Which is a very popular shooter game. But I can't go inside and search all of every match of Call of Duty and see every message that everyone has sent or even there's no sort of Reddit analog in games, right? There's no platform that's actually providing data to researchers that actually allows them to do the work of finding how these platforms are operating. Uh, and so you do, so one, one of my colleagues, you know, looked at the Call of Duty leaderboards and found a bunch of horrible stuff, which is in the intro here, like uh, Rahoa, racial holy war, right? Is a bunch of usernames. Usernames should be the like very bottom of what a, game company should do that you know usernames are persistent right they're attached to individuals um you can put a keyword filter on that for various terms and prevent people from having those usernames but even then we have we're able to find horrible horrible usernames so i think call of duty is definitely one of these but it also goes across all these different games and we also don't know because we can't really see into these spaces to the degree we should be able to and I'll add, I mean, I think these kind of live conversation platforms are naturally Im- almost impossible to m- moderate in any meaningful way, right? I mean, we, we saw this with Club, uh, you know, Clubhouse and Twitter spaces as well, is that, yeah, the AI or some moderation effort might look at usernames or, you know, group descriptions or something like that. But unless you actually say in your group description, this is a Nazi group, come chat with us, uh, the AI is not going to really do anything, right? And so we, we th- there are mechanisms by which extremists have kind of played the system in a way, right? But a live chat, I mean, Clubhouse struggled with this, everyone struggles with this, is that you can't police it in the same way that you would content, right? Posting content. And so it's going to perpetually be a problem in this space, I think. You know, as long as things are happening in real time, it's almost impossible to police. I want to ask you both about your recommendations about how to address this problem. Um, and then I also want to ask you about the extent to which you've heard from gaming companies or engaged with them after the fact Uh, And what type of environment there is now for the research community to engage with gaming companies? Yeah, I mean, I think one of our main ones was don't panic, right? Don't create a kind of panic around this issue because that's not gonna that's not gonna be good for anyone. Um, in fact, most of our survey participants talked about kind of positive aspects of gaming and uh, things that they were getting out of it, uh, particularly during COVID and things like that, which which I think are all um, important to highlight. There needs to be more research on this in this space, more kind of thorough research in this space, which I think is starting, but still very much in its infancy. There needs to be a bit more moderation or at least mechanisms where you can moderate kind of in-game chats, voice-based chats, that sort of thing. And uh, we haven't necessarily even started to think about what intervention or prevention in this space might look like. 
whether using gaming as a prevention tool or having prevention in games, all of that, I think, needs to be talked about a bit more thoroughly. How about you, Daniel? We try to put the onus here, right, on the companies, right, to do more, as well as for civil society and government to take their place. We really need a whole of society response to address hate, harassment, extremism in online games. For the industry, you mean there's only one game company that has an explicit anti-extremism policy at this point, and that's Roblox. You know, if you look at Activision Blizzard or EA or any of these other game companies, none of them have on their website language that says, hey, we don't allow extremism on our services, right? You would think that after years of, of social media, right, developing policies and thinking about enforcement, that that would be sort of the lowest bar, but that really, that just doesn't exist in gaming right now. And so that's sort of one of the key sort of recommendations coming out of this is create a policy. I think obviously anyone could write, you know, some words on their website, right, that say we are against extremism. But the hope would be that by creating an anti-extremism policy, the game company would have to think, okay, what does it actually mean to find this kind of content in our game? How do we find it? Who do we need to bring on board in order to be able to detect it, right? What does that look like? And then, you know, another piece of it is do the very basic sort of data transparency that social media companies are doing. Xbox released their first transparency report this year uh, when social media companies have been doing this for, you know, a decade. It's unacceptable. And so, you know, we really need to see that. And then for for government, I think we need to start asking questions, right? There's been sort of a, a spotlight on social media companies, right? And the ways in which they operate from government for many years now. I think we need to turn the same kind of spotlight on gaming companies and start asking them questions, right? How do they do content moderation? How do they think about extremism, right? These are all the things that are well within the remit of various legislators. And I think it's a good place to start. For Certainly, we're available to educate folks, but for them to engage with game companies and say, we're concerned, we're seeing these results from studies like these, and we want to know more. We want you to, you know, to answer these questions. So I think that's a good place to start. A last question, really, but about the research community. As you say, you know, there's been a lot of work on social media. Part of that has been about the availability of data sets from platforms. Uh, and as you say, you know, perhaps that's not as open in the gaming environment or not as available. But how would you characterize, uh, each of you, the research community focused on this problem? Are more resources going towards it? Clearly, Amar, your report was in conjunction with the United Nations, um, and there is a a kind of extremism research network that, uh, you know, it was part of. How would you characterize this community? Is it growing? Do you anticipate that it will begin to work more together? I mean, it's definitely growing. There's a lot more attention on it and a lot more kind of more nuanced attention on it than before, instead of just kind of panicking about the issue. Yeah, there's the Extremism and Gaming Research Network, or EGRN, which just got going uh, last year. And so so they brought together a lot of researchers to look at this issue. There continue to be kind of gaps on this, right? And, And our report isn't actually any different. I mean, most of our respondents were from Europe and North America. But there's a huge gap when it comes to sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, something like 80% of Southeast Asia's urban population are gamers or identify as gamers. And about 80% of them play on their phones, right? Play on their mobile phones. And so that's another whole 
issue uh, when it comes to how to moderate or how to look at kind of content moderation from that perspective. And and the same is true with Kenya. I think like you know millions of people in in, in parts of Africa play play games, and we know nothing about what's going on in these spaces. Zero, right? And so all I think a lot of our research is Western focused, and um, that that slowly needs to uh, change as well if we want to look at kind of how this stuff impacts is impacted global globally. Yeah, I would I would agree with everything that was just said. I think that's the area that we're seeing sort of grow in attention the fastest, right, is the research community and people. I mean, I think the thing that's that's interesting to me, right, is to see people like we're working with Dr. Constance Steinkuhler, working with Dr. Rachel Coward. I think people who have spent a lot of their career doing the work of pushing back against various moral panics in online games, digging in and wanting to get involved in thinking about extremism in online games. To me, when you have folks who have spent so much time debunking various sort of rumors about the harmful effects of video games, I think the fact that you have people like this who are who are doing work in this area shows that this is a real issue. And people who, you know, not people who care about extremism are working on this, but people who care deeply about games are also deeply invested in making sure that all of the positive elements that make online games such an important social space don't become places where extremism and hate find a real home. I think that's really notable about the sort of growing research community. Last question. Uh, are the two of you gamers? I, Amara, I always, every time I talk to you, I know that you are, in fact, wearing a gaming headset. This is, uh, I don't know what this is, but no, the last game I played was Street Fighter and Mortal, Mortal Kombat. So I'm not, I'm not a gamer in the way that my friends identify themselves as gamer. Uh, I do play Candy Crush, though. Yeah, I'm, I would say I'm definitely a gamer. But I, I sort of differentiate. For recreation, I play single-player games, right, where I don't have to be as concerned about the social aspects. But for work, I'm, you know, I'm looking at online multiplayer games. Quote, unquote, work. Uh, well, <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate the two of you joining me today uh, talking about this. And I look forward to seeing the results of your future research. Perhaps we'll talk about it again in a year's time. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.